You're listening to the Coconut Avenue Radio and Podcast Network. Welcome to Out There on the Edge of Everything, the show that examines, helps you understand, and effectively deal with the interesting edges of life. Broadcasting now from the virtual C344 studios overlooking the edge of Coconut Avenue is your host, award-winning and best-selling author, Dr. Stephen Lesovich. Hi, this is Dr. Stephen Lesovich out there on the edge of everything. This episode is entitled, Interview with Miss Christy Rutherford. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Christy Rutherford, a women's executive coach, a global leader, advisor, author, and entrepreneur, joining us from the Bahamas today. Welcome to the show, Christy. Thank you so much for inviting me, Stephen. I'm excited to be here. You were an officer in the U.S. Coast Guard. You were only the 13th African-American woman to achieve the rank of commander in the Coast Guard's 225-plus year history. So I want to start out by saying thank you for your service to our country. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience in the U.S. Coast Guard? So the Coast Guard, the, the goal was to join the Coast Guard while I was in college and, of course, leave after three years because it was a three-year commitment for us. And I loved it because we were always doing something different every day. And so I worked jobs, being from a small town in South Carolina, low-skill, low-wage worker jobs that they call, the MBAs call, right? Like the predictable jobs, the textiles and the this and the that. So to be able to be in the Coast Guard, to have something different every day, a new experience every day, and to be emergency managers, that fit right in with my personality who wants to do everything all at the same time and never take a break. So it was good. <laughs> Being an African-American woman and an officer in the U.S. Coast Guard, you were in a leadership position. What were the most valuable leadership skills you learned as a U.S. Coast Guard officer? First one initiative, you know, not being asked to do certain things, but taking the initiative to be able to do what needs to be done. The second thing is leadership in the military is very important. We look to shore up and to strengthen the weakest link where a lot of people demonize weak people who are in the organizations. But for us, it was find the weak person and be able to work with them and encourage them to be stronger as opposed to demonizing them or, you know, really like ignoring them or punishing them for being the weaker person. So my gift is seeing people not necessarily for who they are in the moment, but seeing who they are living in their fullest potential. And then it's my job to be able to get them to be who I can see who they are. So I would say initiative is huge. And then really being able to give people the room and the encouragement to be greater, which is what attributed to my success. And, and it's what attributes to my success today, even in the work that I do. You are a certified executive leadership coach obtaining that certification from Georgetown University. What is an executive leadership coach? An executive leadership coach. So I got the certification in 2006 when I, 2005, 2006, when I went to DC, but I heard about it. So in the Coast Guard, I was a mentor and mentors work for free. <laughs> mentors, mentor people, like I just talked about being able to, to have people see a greater version of themselves. And so when I saw this lady at this conference talking about coaching, I'm like, oh my God, that's what I do. That's what they call it. And she kept talking about Georgetown. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do that because that's just a natural part of who I am. So you have some people who coach 
for profit, but I coached for purpose because I was always the super nerdy friend. I was always the person who was reading self-help magazines starting at 11. I'm reading Woman's World and Better Home and Garden. So I was always the person that was reading books, giving people advice. And so going into the military, nurturing people and getting them to see a greater version of themselves and give them advice, some data-based advice or something that I read in a book somewhere. And one of my friends from the Coast Guard always talks about, you always got a book. Because I'd be like, this book said this, this book said that. So being very data-driven, so for me, the coaching certification at Georgetown was just somebody labeling and giving me a piece of paper to what was natural to me. So executive coaching is coaching people on the executive level in leadership to be greater, to be better. And it can be used in many different ways. But a part of what we do is focus on the self-care component and then the negotiations and salary component. You are also a Harvard Business School alumni and attended the Program for Leadership Development at Harvard. One of the missions of the Harvard Business School is educating leaders who make a difference in the world. How did your experience at Harvard help make you a better leader and help you make a difference in the world? The Program for Leadership Development was by far one of the most fascinating experiences in my adulthood. And so I went to Harvard in 2016. I left the Coast Guard in 2012. And so for me, Harvard was the, how do I say this? Harvard allowed me to interpret what I did in the Coast Guard to the corporate world because the military has a completely different language. You know, as as you know, lawyers have a completely different language and acronyms and books that you use that's different from doctors, that's different from accountants, that's different from really even in the corporate world, working in marketing or whatever. And so to leave the Coast Guard and to have the capacity to create high-performing teams, to be able to see the greatness in others and the desire to really serve on a greater level in a world where the Coast Guard is now the minority and the majority of people are working at corporate, Harvard gave me the opportunity to be able to see some of the things that I did in the military were relevant in the corporate world because leaders are leaders. Leaders are stressed out no matter if they are working in the different industries. So to see those commonalities in some of my classmates, we had 186 people from 45 countries. And so to see that the men in Greece have the same challenges as the women who are in Dubai, which have the same challenges as somebody who's in China and then someone's in Nigeria, the same challenges that we're having in the U.S. in in corporate or in electronics or in the tech field, same thing in the military because people are people. And so it gave me that broader macro level view that the challenges of leadership are common no matter which country that you're in. But then the solution to being a better person and being a better solution, a better leader is the same. Really, the benefit was those. And then also interpreting changing the language from what I learned in the Coast Guard to being able to convert it over to corporate. And so it's interesting now because people think I used to work in corporate because I speak the language of corporate. And I said, I never worked a day in corporate. I was in the military. But that's one of the greatest benefits that completing that program allowed me to do. You also completed a three-year congressional fellowship with the late Congressman Elijah Cummings at the U.S. House of Representatives. Tell us about your experience working with Congressman Cummings and what leadership skills you learned from working with him. That was an interesting contrast experience when I worked on Capitol Hill because I worked on the oversight committee 
of my organization. So it, it was the oversight and investigative committee of the Coast Guard. So we were looking at Oz behind the curtain and pointing out all the faults and all the flaws and all the things that were going wrong in the organization. So I'm now at the midpoint of leadership and we're, we're told stories of what Congress doesn't do and what we're responsible for and what we're not responsible for. And just with any organization, you have dysfunctions that come from leadership, the top, bottom, and the middle, but mainly the bureaucracy that we talk about at the top of the leadership organization. And now to be able to look behind the curtain and to see that a lot of the challenges that we had were self-created. <laughs> And being able to poke holes in that. And it was it was good, but it was also challenging because I'm now frustrated looking at the patterns that we've been stuck in for the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years that the organization never took control of or never actually took the initiative to be able to change. And now that allowed me to suffer greatly and work 80 hours a week while I was actually in the field in my organization. So it was good, but it was also challenging. So, um, but working for Elijah Cummings was amazing. I mean, he was a dynamic and formidable leader who asked the tough questions, but wasn't afraid to stand up for what was right. So I learned so much in that experience, but so much working for him, you know, working with him to be able to make the organization a better place. You wrote five books that became number one bestsellers on Amazon in just eight months. What motivated you to write five books in eight months? So when I left the Coast Guard, I burned out. It actually took a year and a half to burn out after I resigned, but I resigned. In 2012, with three and a half years left to retire with a full pension. And just like a lot of women that I talk to today, they say, oh, I want to leave my career and start my business so I can have more time, which is not true. <laughs> you know, I want to leave my career that I'm working too much and I want to launch a business so I can work less. That is not true. We're sold a pack of lies over here. So I end up leaving my career and work a lot longer because now I'm trying to replace my income. I'm stressed out. I'm overwhelmed. I was burning out at the time. But then when I finally burned out catastrophically 18 months later, it was a really difficult and a really challenging time. And so I had time to sit around and really investigate how did I become the super successful high-ranking military officer who was lauded by many, highly awarded, and, and have all these degrees and do all these things and check all these boxes and have all these experiences, but then succumb to almost complete mental breakdown. And so through rest and reading and discovering and really looking in the mirror and owning how I created that scenario for myself, I'd studied a lot of leaders, Jim Rome, Napoleon Hill, T.D. Jakes, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, and read all these books that I didn't have time to read to, you know, when I was working 80 hours a week. And really started to look at leadership principles. Like there are longstanding leadership principles that people like William George Jordan wrote about in the 1930s and Florence Scovall Shin and James Allen in the late 1800s. And so there are, um, oh, Wallace D. Waddles in The Science of Getting Rich. So there are longstanding leadership principles that had I learned how to anchor into them, then I would have learned that leadership itself has a lot of co common challenges, regardless of where you're from, your background, and people have been talking about these things for hundreds of years. So I had to put myself back together again, like Humpty Dumpty. And so now it's time to pour out. And so to write five books in eight months, it was for several reasons. One, I had a lot to say. 
<laughs> on on how I got it so wrong and I was solely chasing titles and promotion and money and I never stopped to take care of myself. And then the second part was I was financially wiped out. Once I left the Coast Guard and then I blew through all the, you know, six figures that I saved in a year and a half of seeking entrepreneurship, I was trying to cut a deal with with, with the man above to say, let me out of my brother's house. So that's the second reason that I did it. So you recently received a diploma as a pastry chef and specialized in chocolate pastries. Now that's a serious left turn, Christy. What made you want to become a pastry chef? I actually went to uh, the, the culinary school that I went to in October. That was my second stint at culinary school. So the first one was in 2004 when I was in Houston. And I actually moved to Houston to go to that culinary school. So I've always wanted to be a pastry chef. The first book I learned how to read was the Betty Crocker Cookbook, along with Rumpelstiltskin. And so, but the Betty, Betty Crocker Cookbook, the, the big red one, was my favorite book growing up. So I come from a long line of bakers and cooks. And I wanted to bake and I started baking supervised when I was six, seven, unsupervised at 11. And that's how it would brought my friends to come over. And I'd be like, hey, you want to come over and play? And they would be like, no, are you making cookies? And I would say no. And they said, we're not coming. And I was like, okay, well, I'll make some cookies. And even when I was in the Coast Guard, I baked the promotion cakes and I baked cookies and baked goods and Rice Krispie treats and all these things. And so I always wanted to be a pastry chef, but we grew up in a time, Stephen, before the internet. <laughs> It was better times, but anyway, but we grew up before the internet. And so, or I was looking at where I was going to move to at my next place. They had a uh, Allen and Marie Lenoke Culinary Institute in Houston where they didn't do hospitality management. So I didn't need another degree. I had an MBA at that point, but all they did was cooked. So that's why I ended up moving to Houston to go to that school. And that's where I got the pastry chef diploma. And then last October, I went to Vegas to study with a world-renowned pastry chef now from the business level because that's something that I'm going to do. And that was a different take because now I'm looking at the technology and the chocolate and, you know, where, where did you get the cocoa butter from and what's the best chocolate to use for this and what do your molds look like and what it, what's different in the way that chocolate was made in 2004 the way that it is in 2023 and so that was strictly for business purposes to with the intent of this year launching a chocolate subscription box you're an entrepreneur and you founded a very successful company for coaching executive women to help them get promoted and to get raises what made you want to become an entrepreneur I became an entrepreneur out of desperation which is not the easy way and is not the recommended way to go <laughs> Yeah, a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs are creative out of desperation. That is the worst thing that you can do. But it is what it is. And so I left my career. The Coast Guard, again, you know, I, I talked about burning out, but I knew that if I didn't resign, that I would have died within a year because I, I was addicted to proving people wrong and I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop. I couldn't, you know, and, and a part of what I do today in the coaching and the women that I coach is like, I'm who I needed 10 years ago. So I became an entrepreneur out of desperation and it's been one of the most challenging experiences, but it's also been one of the most rewarding. And I was telling my clients last night who were like, oh, I want to leave and become an entrepreneur and they think it's going to be easy. I'm like, you have to be clinically insane. <laughs> <laughs> 
you have to be clinically insane to be an entrepreneur. I love it, but uh, you know, we need to really tell people and be able to communicate is not as easy as Instagram and TikTok makes it out to be. It's not that easy. It's hard, but it's rewarding, but it's not for everybody. And I think that's the thing. And it's, it is not a loss if you do it and it doesn't work. I was talking to a woman who inboxed me and she was talking about, can she come partner with me and my company and, and, and do all these things? And because she had run her company for nine businesses and nine years and she didn't make any money. And I'm thinking to myself, Stephen, what can you offer me? But whatever. And so it's like, I said, you know, she was running out of money. And I said, well, why don't you go get a job? And she was like, no, God told me to leave my job. And I'm like, but you're not making any money as an entrepreneur, right? So maybe you need to leave at that time, but maybe it's time for a new message. And so I'm like, really, if you go to a job, you're looking to extract, it doesn't matter where or how you get your value extracted that you bring to the market, whether you get that value extracted in the market as a contractor, as a you know business to consumers or a business to business or from a business, it doesn't matter. I said, so all you're doing is going to be able to you know, go to an organization and have them extract the value that you bring to the market. So you didn't lose just because it didn't work. It just didn't work. And that's okay. Christy, you're an alpha female. An alpha female is defined as a woman who has embraced her leadership ambitions, is talented, highly motivated, and self-confident. Your company provides services to teach leadership skills and to coach other alpha females. Tell us about what type of alpha females you were looking to work with and the services you offer to other alpha females through your coaching. You know, I feel like, am I an alpha female? I attract aggressive women. Is that the same thing, Stephen? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I'm, I, I attract what I am. And so a part of what I had to learn in marketing and really just to get comfortable with the women that I'm meant to provide services to, like all of my clients, I'm really talking to one woman, one woman. And so I've been able to attract African-American clients, clients who are from different countries, uh, Nigeria or Jamaica, or we have Filipino clients and Latina clients. I've, I've had clients in Dubai and from Macedonia and from Taiwan and from France and all these other kinds of countries. And so for me, it's, I'm not for everybody, which is okay. I just want to give that disclaimer. But I'm looking for women who are on the same trajectory and the path that I was on in 2012, typically a woman who works in a male-dominated work environment. We've assimilated our natural tendencies to be able to fit into an environment and, and succeed in that environment. Am I naturally aggressive? Not really. I mean, I'm strong, but typically, Stephen, strong women were survivors, right? High achieving women are high achieving for a reason. We're running from something. We're running from a scenario that something that may have happened in our childhood or, and, or we are working to prove somebody wrong. And so we have something to prove. And so we'll outwork you. We'll work 80 hours a week. We'll prove you wrong. It, it, it can be a first grade teacher that told you weren't going to be anybody. It can be a woman who had a mom who was abused uh, by her father when she was growing up or being abused by her stepfather. So now she's working 80 hours a week to say, I'm never going to be like my mom because anytime somebody 
I twitch like they want to put their hands on me, I have enough money to be able to leave. It can be women who are the first generation in their in their family to be able to come to the U.S. So they feel guilty about being the one who makes it. So they'll work themselves until they don't, they never feel like they have enough money because they become the person who supports their family in different countries. And so it's the 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 alpha woman, quote unquote alpha woman, I would say is really an ambitious woman, but the, the women that I typically attract are those ambitious women who are caught in that cycle of overworking, overdoing, doing too much, neglecting ourselves, overwhelmed, stressed out, partially crazy, whether we admit to it or not. And we're sacrificing everything for a title or for a job or for recognition, but we never feel like we have enough. So those are typically the women that I, uh, I attract. One of your goals is to create a new narrative for women in leadership positions. What is that new narrative? My goal is to let women know we don't have to work three times as hard for half the credit. It, we, don't, we don't have to work 80 hours a week to be able to get ahead. We don't have to work on the weekends to be able to get ahead. We don't have to sacrifice our mental and our physical health to be able to be promotable in an organization. And really, a lot of the things that we're doing to be promoted at the scene level, it makes us unpromotable. So that's one part. The second part is we can get into the C-suite in large numbers. We can close the gender wage and, and, and pay equity gap ourselves through understanding what the game is, like the game of leadership. Either you're playing a game or you're getting played. Either you're moving the pieces on the chessboard or you're being moved. And so there are a lot of articles that talk about how women can't get ahead and it's everybody else's fault and men should open the door for women and we're running up against the glass ceiling and we're doing all these things and they don't want us in the room and and so there's a lot of and I'm not saying Stephen that we don't have challenges I was in an organization where I was 0.1% <laughs> but a lot of times it's we're looking at everybody else and we're waiting for everybody else to do something for us and 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 we're giving our power away and feeling powerless but once is it them at a certain point what part of it is them and what part of it is me and at the senior levels 80% of it is the woman and so if we're working 80 hours a week and getting all these degrees and volunteering for all these extra projects i, I remember doing all these things and being mad at the man who the, the, the white male who was working 35 hours a week. Well, in hindsight, Stephen, when I burned out and I had time to look at it, it's like, he, they didn't require me to work 80 hours a week. He was working 35 hours a week. I'm working 80. Why am I mad at him? <laughs> and so, but I'm caught in this cycle and I couldn't stop because psychologically I'm working to like prove my family wrong and to prove people wrong who say that I didn't belong in an organization and then prove the people wrong in college and then prove my high school teacher wrong. And so all of these things, these, these narratives that I'm dragging around with me started long before I got in the workplace to be able to get women to stop long enough to be able to look at what is really going on and how are you really showing up? We're able to reclaim our power and reclaim our mental and our physical health. And, and and reclaim the, the, the new narrative that we want to create for ourselves that all things are possible if we believe that it is. And so we've, we've been very successful with our clients thus far. We continue to do that in the future. You really have a proven record of success with teaching leadership skills to women. You have assisted women getting promoted to executive positions and earning $11 million in raises since June of 2020. Tell us how you help women get promoted and get 
raises. We're at $12.5 million in raises now. Yeah, one of my one of my clients got a, a million dollar increase last week. I'm like, oh my God, we're going to write that down. So <laughs> oh, we jumped a million dollars in a week. So it's just what I just talked about. It's, it's really the self-care, Stephen. And so I have, I mean, I can go on the multitude of stories to tell with regards to my clients, but not only have we gotten the $12.5 million in raises, we've saved over 25 marriages. We've kept hundreds of kids out of therapy talking about their mama. We have gotten <laughs> women off of, off of high blood pressure and diabetes medication. I've, one of my clients had high blood pressure, endometriosis, fibroids, and she stuttered since she was three and four months that was gone. And so really it's, we have to teach high achieving women who are burning out, but we can't stop proving people wrong and proving and, and working ourselves into oblivion to stop, stop long enough to take care of ourselves. And so that's really a part of it. I attract women with what they want, which is they want more money, power, and respect, but I give them what they need, which is a plan and a system to be able to take care of themselves. And so one of my clients is 43. She has at the time, she had eight-month-old twins What had stopped combing her hair and she stopped taking showers and she's working 80 hours a week and she has two babies and a husband. And I was like, you know, you're about to die. <laughs> I was like, because I know I almost did it, Stephen. Like when, when a woman stops combing her hair, we're on our way out of here. Like she was checking out and nobody, I'm not going to say nobody was talking to her. But nobody was going to give her the real, real. So I was like, you know, you're going to need to die. And so we ended up working together. And so now she got a nanny and a housekeeper and she gets massages and her hair and nails done all the time. She's taking showers and she's able to say no at work and she's able to create boundaries and draw and create priorities, but really prioritizing herself in meditating and working out. So really it's a self-care regimen that we hold women accountable for doing and then looking in the mirror of why she didn't feel like she ever had enough. And it was because she grew up without money and with the mom that was abused by her father. And so she's never not going to be without money. So in her mind, it doesn't matter if she has $2 million in the bank. In her mind, She'll never have enough because she didn't stop long enough to see that she actually crossed the finish line and she got everything that she wanted, but she's stuck in that pattern of old thinking from the mind of the wounded child and not from the rational adult. Your new goal is to get 10,000 women, 1 billion with a B, dollars in raises and promotions by 2025. Is that really a realistic goal, Christy? Yep. <laughs> well, when I said it, I said it in 2019. And I was working with Paul Brunson, amazing. And so he was like, what's your big goal? And I was like, I don't know, get some money around here. And so I was like, okay, so I'll do 5,000 women will get promoted by 2025. And that wasn't scary at all. And my eye didn't twitch. But then when I said, okay, we'll get 10,000 women promoted. All I said just said salary raises and promoted. That was the, the, initial, the, the, the initial goal. We'll get 10,000 women promoted by 2025. And then... In 2020, that's when, of course, when COVID popped out and then Bloomberg and really when Bloomberg wrote the article, it was based on a McKinsey study that said that black and brown women are going to lose the most in the pandemic, right? Like women are going to lose the most. It's going to be a pink recession and all the women are going to lose their jobs and black and brown women just might as well throw their hands up and just give up. It's over. <laughs> I was like, what? So my goal was to prove them wrong. I'm proving other people wrong. And so we ended up doing a million, I think $1.2 million in raises in 
2020. And then we got another 5 million in 2021. And so on average, my clients get a $100,000 raise. So some women got $400,000 raises. Some of them get million dollar raises. Some women get $20,000 raises. And so on average, if it's $100,000 on average, so it's now I have a way to quantify it. So it's 10,000 women at $100,000 equals a billion dollars. So then we put the number in it once we actually started to build the data through actual results. Now, the second part is I have women who get promoted who don't work with me, but they listen to my inside information. So we're counting that too. But now we're starting to expand in different ways. So it's not just me coaching. I have seven coaches and I have women who have gone through my program who are now licensed in the program. And we're working on a couple of things right now that we're going to expand our reach in different areas and in different countries and in different geographic locations. And so, yeah, it's possible. It's, it's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Today, I'm speaking with Christy Rutherford, a women's executive coach, a global leader, advisor, author, and entrepreneur. Christy, how would you describe your own leadership style? It depends on, <laughs> it depends on who I'm leading, right? It's not, everything is not the same. Actually, I would say it is, you know, because I am the same person everywhere. So my leadership style, it depends. And and actually, when I say depends, I always fall back. I was telling somebody the only time I always say I used to be a military officer. That's when I'm trying to explain my toxic trait, Stephen. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> we don't try to explain away why I'm loud and why I'm aggressive. But my uh, my leadership style is really I think that people rise or fall to the level of expectation of their leaders. And so my goal is to always, and it's my gift to see people operating in their fullest potential. And so when I started laughing, it's like, it depends on where you are when I meet you and then your willingness to be able to rise to that level. Sometimes it's through a headlock through with my clients because I drop kick them in the head to be able to stop working themselves to death. But it's really through inspiration, but that inspiration is delivered and served up in different ways. It, it, first, we, we do the talk and then we and then it escalates and then it and then I may get louder and then I then I have to become more direct. But I'm very direct. I'm very succinct. But it's always through the intent of inspiring. And so I was telling my clients last night, if I say something to you that is offensive is not necessarily is not my intent to harm is my intent to even if it hurts, sometimes the truth hurts. I, I may hurt your feelings because you're locked into this thinking that's no longer serving you, but it's never my intent to harm. But I'm very direct. I am I'm very nurturing and I care. And so to have the ability to be able to see women and to get them out of the fire from working 80 hours a week and doing certain things and getting them back into their households and, and getting them back into the lives of their children to be president, back into the lives of their, their spouses so they can actually stay married. I legit just came off a conversation last night and some of them, they were all looking at me like I was crazy, but I was coming at all of them. They all got to get zapped, Stephen, because <laughs> once we you know, the first part of our program is, is about recognizing where you are and pulling them out of the fire, right? And then the second part of the program is the maintenance. Because once you get a high achieving woman out of the fire, they're going to run right back in it. And so when I talked about the woman who was who stopped combing her hair and stopped taking showers or whatever, I cannot wait to interview her because it's going to be so good. Like once we got out of, got her out of the fire and we gave her 20 hours a week back where she was actually able to take care of herself and, and be present with herself first and then her spouse and her kids and she's harmonious in the 
butterflies are out and rainbow has come out and the rain has stopped. <laughs> I don't think it's one size fits all, but anything that I do, my intent is to stop women from self-destruction like I did. And like I said, I left and when I burned out and I had to move in with my brother and I lost my mind first and then my money followed, you know, it, it's it's the conversation that I needed. It's the conversation that I wish somebody would have told me. It's the conversation that even if I wanted to fight them, at least they said it with the with the purpose of saving me from myself. And so that's my goal. Sometimes it's Sometimes it's a knucklehead sandwich and sometimes it's a piece of cherry cake. It depends on the day, Stephen. <laughs> when women reach out to me in my inbox, I mean, you have to go through a whole screening process before you get on my phone because I'm not for everybody. So it's, I ask women, did you watch anything? Did you see me? Did you, because we're not pansies over here. <laughs> yeah, we're not, we're not smelling the roses over here. I mean, it's, it's good, but we're a little, we're different, but but it's, it's, it's interesting, Stephen, and it's funny because there's this woman that I watch and I showed her video to my clients and she has she has this super amazing, nice voice and she's talking like this and she's a coach and, and she has Celine Dion playing in the background of her video. My clients were looking like, oh my God, who is that? And I'm laughing because I'm a... I'm aggressive and a little rugged and but they love it right so it's i'm not knocking her style because she's for somebody i am for who i am for and and once i really got comfortable with being because i'm a lot you've met me in person uh being who i am and not adjusting to suit the need of other people I started to attract the, 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 the clientele that really needed my assistance and was going to be able to reach them in a way that they needed. Like they, I work with high achieving women who are go-getters and they're boss women. They don't listen to everybody. You coach women all over the globe. What are some of the most important leadership skills a woman must develop to become a global leader just like you? One of the things that Napoleon Hill said, he said, a person cannot master others until they learn how to master themselves. So the first part is self-mastery. And in, in these times of normalized chaos, the first thing that leaders, I would say the first trait that leaders should develop is how to take care of themselves, how to take care of your mental and your physical health as you start to ascend to the higher levels. Because in my organization, I didn't like people talking about me. I, you know, starting to manage my critics became a full-time job. And so I didn't want people to criticize me and I didn't want people to talk about me and I wanted to be liked by everybody or, or just stop talking about me. But if I could manage the 30 people that were talking about me in an organization that had 47,000 people, then how am I going to manage the, the, the amount of haterade that I would look at any global leader has, whether it's Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, even Elon Musk, right? Like they write whole articles demonizing people, regardless if, if people think that they're right or wrong. Jeff Bezos and, and Mark Zuckerberg and all these other kind of people like leaders Depending on your level of global influence, you're going to have a lot more people who are going to love you. But then at the same time, you're going to have a lot of people that have been exposed to you or understand your message that aren't going to like you. So being able to manage your mental and your physical health, to manage the quote unquote burdens that come with the blessing is going to be important. And learn how to master yourself first before you master other people is a key component in that. What type of in-person or online classes do you offer? Uh, I, I do do keynotes for organizations talking about leadership. 
um, three ways three ways to unlock or unleash your leadership potential. I talk about self-care, but really I talk about how to, we again, we have to tailor it, Stephen, to what they think they want, how to be promoted, and then how to be promoted is actually take care of yourself. So, but just in a different way, spoken from a leader who burned out, because what I think about, and I ain't gonna go longer to this, to the side, but a lot of leadership training, Stephen, is offered by people who have PhDs in leadership, but they've never been leaders. And if you've never wanted to punch somebody in the face, then you've then you've never been a leader. You can't give me advice, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because leadership is tough. Like I'm like, if you if you say a, a PhD would say you shouldn't want to punch somebody, a person who's been a leader for 20 years, you'd be like, oh yeah, it's I want to tell me how to disengage from that. So <laughs> so I do keynotes from the perspective of I have been an executive level leader in an organization for over 15 years. But anyway, but they can get my case study uh, and learn how to get a 30% raise without getting another degree at changenowwithchristy.com. So, and that's at no cost. Christy, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Feeling like, you know, it's interesting, Stephen, because I've accomplished a lot and I had these guys read my bio on the podcast that I did the other day. And I was like, oh, podcast is over. It's been an hour. And so, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, there's always something more. There's always something different. There's always a new mountain that I want to climb or more people that I want to impact. And so in, you know, uh, I'm a quote unquote, not necessarily overachiever. I just like to do stuff and I want to be a greater impact. And so Having these things, these projects that I want to launch and these things that I want to get off the ground, whether, you know, whether it's expanding the coaching company, expanding the reach, you know, launching a podcast that we're going to be doing in the next couple of weeks, then the chocolate company. I'm not done, Stephen. So that's what gets me out of the bed every day. What is one thing you do on a daily basis that creates a positive impact in the world? So Dr. Miles Monroe said the greatest thing that a leader can leave the world is a mentee, not a building with your name on it. And so I've had mentees that are doing phenomenally well still in the organization of senior leaders or, you know, ones that have retired and have gotten great jobs. And so, you know, fast forwarding to the day, I always reflect and look back and be like, are you good if this is it? I I never settled and I never um, shrink and I never was afraid to just try something, even if I was going to fail at it epically. I was going to do it and see if it worked. And if it didn't work, I was going to cut my losses and move on. And then, you know, living the day, wanting to make impact in some way. And even if that impact is resting, if I get another day, but that's how I live. How can people find you and contact you? What is your website and your social media identifiers? Again, uh, the best way if they want to get my insight is to go to Change Now with Christy. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, which I love it. I'm on there all the time. So um, Christy, C-H-R-I-S-T-Y, Rutherford, R-U-T-H-E-R-F-O-R-D, ChristyRutherford.com. You can also, instead of going to the website Change Now or Christy, you can text Change Now to 66866. Again, Change Now to 66866. So we can do it on the text way. And then I'm also on Instagram and Facebook and uh, we're we're creating a, a TikTok page, but that's, that's Christy Rutherford as well. It's a lot. It's a lot, Stephen, but it's good. <laughs> Christy, is there anything else you would like our listeners to know about you or your coaching business? I would say that I just want to leave the message that have the courage to go and play full on. And because tomorrow's not guaranteed and it's not necessarily tomorrow, Stephen, like the next minute is not guaranteed. So I want people to not be afraid to go out and step out and find out that, you know, there's so much more in them 
that's wanting and waiting to be revealed, they just have, they have free will. And, and I want them to have the courage to be able to go out and do that and live it with intention and live it to the fullest. Today, I have been speaking with Christy Rutherford, a women's executive coach, global leader, advisor, author, and entrepreneur. It was a pleasure to speak with you today, Christy. I really learned a lot. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for inviting me. This was fun. Until next time, Dr. Stephen Lesovich, Out There on the Edge of Everything. You have been listening to Out There on the Edge of Everything, the show that examines, helps you understand, and effectively deal with the interesting edges of life. For more information on your host, Dr. Stephen Lesovich, please visit slesovich.com. For more information on prior and future shows, please visit coconutavenueradio.net. This is the Coconut Avenue Radio and Podcast Network.